I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, everyone, um, and welcome to the launch of the 57th issue of Five Dials, To Leave and To Be Left Behind. Um, as many of you will know already, Five Dials is a literary magazine which is published by Hamish Hamilton. We've been running Cade now, and we are published um, always free online and also straight into your inbox if you are a subscriber. Um, and we're delighted to be hosted this evening by the LRB, virtually hosted, and we're going to be sending out the issue itself, number 57, at the end of the event. So you have plenty of time to subscribe. If you're not already a subscriber, there's a link in the um, event information to sign up and it's totally free. So this issue is quite a special one for us. It's a bit different than normal because it's been guest edited by the wonderful Sophie McIntosh, who's here with us. Sophie's second novel, Blue Ticket, which is coming out later in the summer, is, among other things, a road trip novel. And so when we started talking about what we might like to do with this issue, we were thinking quite early on about the idea of journeys, where they take us and how they change us. And the issue itself is full of loads of fantastic responses to those questions in many different forms. Some of them very inquisitive, euphoric, some deeply disquieting. And it's a real pleasure to have three of the contributors here with us this evening to read their pieces and discuss. So without further ado, very excited to introduce our guests for the evening. Rachel Allen is a poet who first, whose first collection of poems, Kingdom Land, is published by Faber. She's a co-author of a number of collaborative artist books, including Nights of Poor Sleep with Marie Jacoti and Almost One Say Again with Jock John Josh. She writes for Art Review, Tank Magazine, and Music and Literature, and is the poetry editor for Granta Magazine and Granta Books. She's currently a Burgess Fellow at the University of Manchester, and her work has been described as surreal and fiery, saturated with uncanny violence. Hello, Rachel. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> um, Yara Rodriguez-Fowler is a writer from South London. Her first novel, Stubborn Archivist, was longlisted for the Desmond Elliott and the Dylan Thomas Prizes winning praise from Olivia Lang, Claire-Louise Bennett, Nikesh Shukla, and many others. Yara was shortlisted for the Sunday Times Young Writer of the Year Award 2019, and she's currently writing her second novel, for which she's already received the Society of Authors John C. Lawrence Award, the Eccles Centre Award. So we're all looking forward to that novel when it comes. Uh, she's been published in The Guardian, New York Times, Vogue, and elsewhere, and she's also a trustee of Latin American Women's Aid. Hi, Yara. Thanks for joining us. Bridget Minimore is a British Ghanaian writer from Southeast London. 
She's a poet, editor, critic, dramaturg and journalist who writes about theatre, music, pop culture, race, class and feminism, among other things. She was shortlisted to be London's first Young Poet Laureate and was chosen as one of speaking volumes, 40 stars of black British literature. Her debut poetry pamphlet, Titanic, was published in 2016. And in 2018, she co-founded Critics of Colour with playwright Sabrina Mafuse. She now works in TV production and is currently working on a new book of poetry slash prose, an extract of which was published in the anthology Noodles of Africa in 2019, which is a very good book. I can recommend it to you all. Hello, Bridget. Thanks for joining us. And finally, Sophie McIntosh is the author of The Water Cure, which was long listed for the Man Booker Prize 2018 and won a Betty Trask Award in 2019. She also won the White Review Short Story Prize and the Virago Stylist Short Story Competition. And she's been published in Granta, the White Review, Tank Magazine and others. Her second novel, Blue Ticket, is coming out at the end of August. It's already out in the US, where the New York Times called it dreamlike, tense and compelling with a pitch perfect ending. And I think Sophie's going to let us hear a little extract of that this evening. Um, and the final thing to say, copies of all of the wonderful panellist books available to order through the event page, including signed copies of Blue Ticket, which is obviously not published yet, but exclusively for this evening, you can buy it. Um, and then it will disappear again until August 27th. So do have a look at their beautiful website um, after the event or during the event, if you're a multitasker. And yeah, you can you can order copies of the books or you can drop into the, the bookshop itself, which we're all delighted to see is, has now reopened. So I'm going to hand over to Rachel to kick us off with the readings. Rachel, take it away. Hello. So you can hear me, Hermione. That's all good. I heard. Brilliant. Thank you so much for inviting me to read. It's such an honour to read among these like incredible writers and to be published in Five Dials, which is just continually such an amazing support for writers. I'm going to read from my sequence of poems that's published in the new issue called God Complex. And this sequence will hopefully form part of a larger book length sequence of poems that, to be brief, looks to position human grief, be it through heartbreak or loss, alongside what people are calling climate grief. So the loss of our ecological spaces and non-human kin around us. Um, and I thought I'd start by reading a small excerpt from Maymay Bersenbrugger's Hello, the Roses who paves the way for this radical thinking about non-human beings and ecological spaces before I read my own. Where dark sky fills with breezes, currents, moisture, dust particles and so forth, a parallel vault moves as clouds merge and fuse, form our psychological climate, a growth medium like creativity in a dream, rummaging through nights in the future for data. And this is from My God Complex, which is in the new issue of Five Dials. I intellectualize the sky that feels like it's opening up, but that is just my mind following a ratty heron as it blows through open space towards a bad bit of cloud, more cerebral than I'd like. The heron watched changes into a mucky bubble, the dirty linen colour of gum, and with that old chemical smell of gum. Dear scenery all around, I lie under the meshed structure of the sky in the bloodbath soil of a race course where the mechanics of a purebred horse leg are oiled and machinic 
synchronicity and thank God I am grieving while the climate dims. What an effort otherwise. Are you done with it? Fly in the buttercream of a plastic rose. I stand where we first met and am inconsolable. The river is moving too quickly and the bloated strands of it all at once. The river and the wires above it shaking like a fit that perfectly matched my mood. Raised moon options in the sky, coastal grains, solar noon, a catastrophic resistance to other people that comes after a great saturation of feeling, an adrenal failure. I'm leaving Europe while the clouds look British. History just goes binge purge, binge purge, like me, and like me, it's heart busted by the river. I'm knackered as knackered as the Madonna della Misericordia. My emotions are zooed into the borehole of a tree. Even as I look in on them, they are becoming extinct. I would have had your children, beneficial and tempered, marital as water boatmen on the surface. No, no, really, it's winking, this disaster horizon, walking backwards into rain with only one emotional cloud, one emotional cloud and the red outline of trees. Bryce, the tree's worth, that hosts a government of microbe wet nurses that supports a sequence of systems that lean on me, a man, a gut. Green lawn, peppered blue steak, burning intensely, like an insect combusting in one of those restaurant machines. The dying egg in such an insect is its ignited in-flight system. I am keen to pick back the cuticle of the earth and see what's underneath. Pick out the emblems of woodlouse, parasite fossil, the loads of skin pregnant with old cells deteriorating. The fresh and voracious odour of car spills like thick drink on the plastic hot dash, driving as the sun banks on a kidney-shaped lake with the pine smell swinging. Heat is a trust fund sustenance, epochs ballooning and measured in the BSL-3 lab. What does all this feel like from a car? We see black cows slope their shapes like witches' capes, bent over on a riddling green, fields, greens of interlocking shades regimenting into purple. I am a fly on the end of a rod, and in that moment, an indeterminate species, dead fly, a prophecy in the undead mouth of a fish. What is it? Connectivity, a screaming figure flailing their torso on a concrete altar, mythical, an undiagnosed condition, blemish on your neck, the shape and mark of a religious burn. I did that. I call it the worship condition. What's a taste in the mouth, like a body under the tongue, all purging out like gods purged from mountains? Red alert sounds in the fake suburb built, practice catching terrorists who gut real suburban homes for their myriad developments. Military base on the edge of the beach near the shoreside firing range and offshore rigs, which look as though they're moving slowly towards land. Home abortion with pineapple, 
I knew with the first pain I was sentenced, a search engine, apocryphal and winged. My God is unnervingly resourceful. I fell like a dog on the spike of a tree, veiled heirloom of surname heraldry and died fast. The civilians of the future collapse in tandem, like when an old spine craves dignity and the world gets smaller. Thank you everybody for listening and I'll now hand over to Yara. Hello, thank you so much Rachel. Uh, that was really sobering. Thanks so much Sophie for inviting me to be here and Hermione. Uh, it's so weird knowing that like, it says 100 attendees and I can't see you, I wish I could see you. Yeah, thanks for having me and what a pleasure to be here uh, and in, in the magazine alongside such amazing contributors. Yeah, so the piece I'm going to read is new and a bit experimental. So thank you for letting me um, try it out on you. It's an image in it. So at some point, hopefully an image will come up on the screen and we'll look at it together. And that's what I'm going to say about it for now. I'm going to open with, uh, there's a song by this Brazilian artist called uh, Caetano Veloso, who's quite famous. And the song is called Terra, which means like land or earth. And um, you should uh, look it up later and listen to it. You should listen to the live 1998 version. Um, and so I've just roughly translated a few of the lyrics um, that I'm going to start with. When I found myself imprisoned in the cell of a jail was when I saw for the first time your photographs in which you appear entire, whole, although you were not naked, but yes, covered in clouds. Terra, terra. So distant, like the errant traveller. Who could ever forget you? Grand Designs, Series 16, Episode 4. A programme called Grand Designs came on the TV. They were hungover, slumped on the sofa. Millie said, I like this show. It's a show where they build a house. Katerina nodded. I know it sounds dry, but it's good. It's always a house they've designed themselves and things fuck up. One time this woman's husband left her and he, she had to finish the house alone and live in it. It is like a birth, Katerina said. A her or a death where the house is what remains. They cozied on the sofa, pulled in the curtains. Millie made tea. For that episode, Kevin, the presenter, was in a woodland an hour from London in Essex. He held his hands out around him and walked in walking boots through mud. Hello! There were no other houses, and the trees had thin trunks you could put your arms around, but they were tall and thick-leaved, dark leaves. There was no light in the woodland. We will build our house in amongst the dark trees. We will not disturb the woodland trees. We will sit in the woodland between the dark trees. There was a couple. The man was an architect. I am building, I will build. This house is for my wife, he said. They had 230,000 pounds. She had been a teacher and now was an artist. I am building this house for my wife, the husband said. They're in their fifties, their children were grown up. I will build this house for my wife so she can paint in it. My wife is in remission from cancer. Quietly, he showed the presenter a small model version of his design. It was for a black cubed house with only one window. The presenter was hesitant. 
This house is a risky house. Not everyone would want to live in such a house. It may seem dark. There is only one single window, although it is large. And around them, only tall trees. The thing is, the architect husband says, the thing is that she needs a reflected light, a calm, a cool light like this to paint. Day one. They stand in the mud, surrounded by darkness. We will not disturb the trees, the husband said. Day 36. He wants to paint. Talks about painting. Day 78. The digger can't move through the mud. Its wheels move. There are, there are no other houses in sight. Day 356. This is a risky house, you know. They have £240,000. Day 455. She is wearing a hard hat. Day 533. I wonder if I will get ill again. This house, this house is a labour of love, he says to the camera. Day 548. The house, not yet house, was looking dark. Not everyone would want to live in such a house. But, trees move close around the finished house, right almost to touch its blackness with their finger fronds. Even in the daylight, the house sits alone, cool and black, and black all over in the woodland. Hello. The husband says, welcome, welcome, welcome back. They walk through the corridor, dark, no windows. And in the kitchen, there is a cold, lightless grayness too. And then, oh, and, and then at the back, at the very back, a full, flat glass wall to the woods. And on every wall, the leaf to leaf light, on every wall, on every surface of the black house, his painter wife is painting. She looks up. The presenter was crying. This is a brave house. It is a labour of love. I love it. I love this house, she says. Everyone should build one house in their life if they can. The presenter was crying. This is a brave house. It is full of the terror of the woodland, the terror of the woodland. Millie felt her throat throb and ache. She rubbed her eyes and her face and looked at Katerina, who was crying. Katrina repeated, mug in her hands, the terror of the woodland, Terra. So uh, this is an image, um, it's from NASA. It's of the Earth above the moon's horizon as seen from Apollo 8 on the 24th of December, 1968. Um, Caetano Veloso, whose song I quoted at the start, saw the, this photograph of Earth taken by Apollo 8 in a magazine while in jail in Rio de Janeiro in December 1968. Deher was written about his encounter with that image. A few months later, he would be exiled in England, where he would remain until 1972. Brazil lasted from 1964 to 1985. Um, okay, uh, I'm gonna hand over now to uh, the wonderful Bridget, and I can't wait to hear what you're going to read, Bridget. Oh, hopefully everyone can hear me and see me okay. Um, hopefully my Wi-Fi will last. Um, so I'm just going to read three poems. I'll try and explain them a little bit first, if that's okay. Um, so basically, I've been writing this book that is maybe prose and maybe poetry, or maybe both. Um, and the first part of it, or at least I think the first part of it, um, is a series of small poet, poem like things that talk in this sort of collective third person plural. And I, I, the book is about Southeast London is about sort of growing up 
and is really heavily influenced on my experiences as uh, sort of on the wrong side of the river and uh, feeling very much part of the collective in a way that I don't think I've ever felt since in the same way um and uh there are lots of things that come up pigeons a lot of the time but one of the reoccurring the only reoccurring character in the first part of the book is Keisha the Skett who uh is the if I guess if you know who she is she uh she was the main character of a story that bounced around in south that was sort of shared on Blackberry messenger phones in the early 2000s uh is that a good explanation I think it is and she basically scare is like a, it sort of means like slut or something similar um and she basically just had all these sexcapades and we would share these stories and were obsessed with them and like 20 years later I still think about it all the time which is really yeah why she's the only person who pops up in this first part of the book um so I'll just read these three short little poems uh yeah very strange to not have an audience um and thank you Sophie so much for asking me to submit to Five Dials um it's really funny because Yara and Sophie's books definitely have influenced what I've been writing a lot both the collective third person plural and the fragmented form so it's quite nice to be sandwiched between them root causes we were so poor we didn't know it on cloudless nights we looked for the moon so we could howl at something that was in our stomachs on the nights even the moon said fuck off we hacked ourselves into a pack and paid for cheap polish vodka and slid sweet packets into our leave so our family didn't need to feed us years later scattering folding chairs into crop circles in church halls saying the serenity prayer like a ghost note we debated how much money our light fingers and seared throats kept in our parents wallets invisible we lived in an era of invisibility the fraud boys disappeared into our direct messages when they suspected they had been seen too publicly. We basked in attention from boyfriends we had only met on MSN Messenger. Unseen girlfriends were easy to get. In the early days, we were wooed by waste men who pretended they weren't waste men, so paid for holidays and Air Max and watches and weave. Occasionally, they'd evaporate too early too, sometimes only their money did. Sometimes we'd walk around with nothing chasing us, then turn around to find mandem. They'd materialise out of air thick with weed smoke and menace and opportunity. On these days, we'd make ourselves invisible too, let ourselves fade away into roads with the right postcodes. We'd spot plainclothes feds, always so fucking noticeable, and find ourselves fleeing until we knew they wouldn't find us. Some of us vanished better than others, but certain things always helped. The back doors of bendy buses, the fact everyone wore black, how we knew that no one who didn't look like us could even attempt to tell us apart. Keisha the Skett gets chirps. Everybody knows a story about Keisha the Skett, says an older. It's true, we do. The day she ate her blackberry because some roadman tried to pull a pin out of her on road, so she swallowed it whole and parts of her exploded into something the girl dem who perched on the pavement agreed looked like dog shit. After, when the remnants were between her lips and dripping down her elbows and we could see straight through her stomach because of the hole the blast made and the road men said, your butters anyway, 
everyone agreed her rust-stained mouth still looked full. Okay, I'm done. Yeah, I will hand over to the lovely Sophie McIntosh um, and thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much, Bridget. Um, can everyone see me? Yeah, okay. Thank you so much, Bridget. That was amazing. And thank you to Yara and to Rachel and of course to Hermione. Um, yeah, I've just been so amazing to hear your work read because I've been re reading it, <laughs> um, putting the issue together. And, you know, the whole thing has just been absolutely amazing to kind of go to so many writers that you admire and, you know, ask if they would like to be part of this magazine. So I'm really thankful to Hermione and everyone at Hamish Hamilton and Five Dials for giving me the opportunity. It was a really, really good thing in this year of strange things. <laughs> um, and yeah, thank you so much to everyone who's tuned in. It's really exciting uh, to see the little number that says like how many of you here like literally over 100 even though I can't actually see you and uh, I wish we were kind of having a glass of warm wine on this very beautiful evening but um, this is pretty good as well. Uh, I'm actually not going to read from the issue I'm going to read from uh, Blue Ticket which is my second book which is out soon and I'm going to read apart from the lottery. So the lottery um, or the, the lottery scene the lottery is a really fundamental part of Blue Ticket. In Blue Ticket um, on the day of your first period, girls are sent to a lottery station and they pick a ticket, blue ticket or white ticket. And the picket, the ticket you pick then kind of dictates the rest of your life um, in the sense that if you pick a blue ticket, you can not have children. And if you pick a white one, uh, you have to have children. And so that kind of decision follows the girls throughout their life. And Kala, the heroine of the story, is a blue ticket. So I'm going to just read a little bit from that. We lined up, waiting to pull our tickets from the machine, the way you take your number at the butcher's counter. The music popular that year played from speakers on the ceiling. Just gravity enough. Just ceremony enough. Not necessarily such an important thing after all. My name was called first. They watched me as I walked the length of the room, towards the machine inside its cloaked box. I put my hand in it. I was apprehensive but ready for my life to be changed. I closed my eyes and thought about my father with the wine bottle to his eye. The machine was silent as it discharged a sliver of hard paper into my hands. It was a deep cobalt. Congratulations, the possible doctor in the dark suit said to me. The other girls followed, each taking their own ticket from the machine in turn. Almost a full house, he exclaimed at the end reading a piece of paper spat out from the machine. We huddled and compared tickets. They were all blue except for one, which was white. The girl with the white ticket was escorted into a separate room by the doctor and another emissary. We watched the three of them walk through an unlit doorway. When the doctor came back, he clapped his hands twice. You have been spared, he said, with a terrible benevolence. At the desk, the emissary who had been on the door wrote down the results to communicate to homes, to clinics, places distant and important that we did not know about. One by one, we were called into another room, a different room to the girl who had pulled the white ticket. I lay on a reclining bed with a crisp paper cover and another doctor, this one a woman and comforting almost in the familiar white coat, told me to fold up my knees. 
to push something inside me that hurt, sharp and spidering pain. What is it? I asked, and she said, your doctor will explain it all when you get to wherever you're going. She said when and not if, and I was grateful for that. Behind me, I left a large rose of blood on the paper. The bathroom of the lottery house was filled with yellow light, the veins of my thin neck standing out underneath it. I was a plucked chicken with badly applied eyeshadow, but the locket was around my throat now. There was a long, low mirror above the sink, a wicker chair in the corner, and two bathroom stalls painted peach. In the mirror, I watched the other girls leaning against the wall, toes flexing, eyes raised to the ceiling, moving to the door when the girl with the white ticket came in to join us, then back to the ceiling. There was a dying flower arrangement at the corner of the sink, gaps of oasis showing through pink carnations. The music came through in here too, speakers in the ceiling or underneath the sink. At first I kept looking at the girl who had drawn the white ticket, the other girl in satin, though hers was pale blue and dirty at the hem where it dragged. Her eyes were red. I had the urge to take her arm and run with her somewhere, out to the woodland where I used to smoke with the other girls in my class before lessons beyond the broken barbed wire of the school perimeter where the teachers could not see us. But I did not touch her. I made myself stop looking. Inside the cubicle, I spent some time reading the names and dates scratched on the door. With the safety pin that held on my fake peony corsage, I engraved, color, blue ticket, a smiley face, and the dates underneath. The swell of relief, smooth and natural as a muscle, I would never have children, and I was glad. I had been a child myself not so long ago. I did not want to put any other puny creature through that. Thank you. And back to Hermione. Really great. So let's have a conversation about the issue. The irony does not escape me that we're having a conversation about the issue of a magazine about journeys in the middle of this year, when I think we're all traveling possibly less than we have ever before um but in a way also it also feels fitting and i've been thinking a bit about journeys such a, a kind of timeless theme for art and one that draws the kind of draws <clears throat> writers and and creatives of all kinds because it feels like something that evokes personal experiences almost inevitably um and i wanted to start off by asking you guys whether you have your own favorite pieces of art whether that's writing or music or or visual art or anything else um kind of around the theme that are that are touchstones for you and your work I'm like, i feel like i want to refer to my uh, my my my, pin, my pinterest board <laughs> where i i make like a mood board for um it feels like really basic <laughs> to admit <laughs> for like every book i'm like i make a mood board but um that's like much of it was like um yeah just kind of photographs or like stills from films that i haven't even seen um but that kind of visual touchstone I guess the idea of yeah I guess the journey is kind of like especially particularly in a kind of road trip sense a kind of idea of I don't know like a very specific aesthetic and a very transient yeah I think it has a very cinematic quality doesn't it the idea of a road trip I always think about um American Honey the Andrea Arnold film which is like the classic sort Mm. of dreamy uh adolescent like slightly slightly alarming road trip 
I just watched Wild at Heart for the first time the other day, the David Lynch, um, Nicolas Cage film, which I guess is kind of a road trip and it's just so, so silly, <laughs> but also like very aesthetically um, uh, dramatic. <laughs> yeah. Bridget, are you going to go? Um, yeah, I guess writing at the moment, it's quite heavily influenced by a bunch of books. Um, the main one being uh, one called Kane by Gene Tumor, which not enough people have heard of. I think it's I, he's uh, I sort of fell into a hole of his writing when I was doing lots of stuff at uni around the Harlem Renaissance. And he's definitely one of the lesser known writers in comparison to like the Langston Hughes or the Zora Neale Hurston's. But um, I, I just think he's remarkable. And I think Kane is remarkable. It. it, it People call it a short story cycle, um, which I quite like the idea of. And so he has all these all these motifs that say maybe you can read it one way or the other way. But it, it's basically in three parts, some poetry, some prose. And the first part is sort of in the South. The second part is in Washington, all in the like 20s. Um, and then the third is like a short story on passing and passing for why, which is something that he did quite a lot in his life. Um, so that's a big influence. And then the opening of um the lonely londoners uh just i've sort of complete i've just taken that in a big way uh for the prose part of the book which is the main character sort of on a journey fed up about going to get someone and in what i'm writing now it's the same but instead of a uh, sort of windrush era guy um ah oh, the yellow beast sells cane excellent oh wait they've shared a post they've shared a link um you should get a copy it's great yeah, so the opening of the Lane Londoners where he's on the tube going to get someone, but instead of getting them off a ship that's just come in, uh, he's going into the city. Uh, and yeah, so those were the two main inspirations so far. But I've got like a giant pile near my bed. Try and encourage me. Um, it's sort of working. It's sort of working. <laughs> um, sh shall I go? Yeah, okay. So I guess obviously the Kaitan Willows is an influence um and he like I said um he used to um I guess I'm interested in journeys particularly in the sense of how we can end up in the same places or doing the same things and the relationships between place and how they change over time and how they stay the same and also like how we bump into each other and don't understand each other so like what I mean by that is yeah, Kaitan Villos were like uh, writing songs that were being censored by the dictatorship. And obviously Brazil is now um, being ruled by fascists again uh, with very questionable um, practices in terms of how they got to power with the impeachment of Dilma. Um, and then he came and w was in exile in London. And so the idea of him being in London, wandering around London, I find... Kind of funny but also like if you look back at some of the songs that him and um, the guy he was exiled with wrote they talk about how nice London is how the police get along with everybody and again the irony of them being like right in front of all of this violence that was happening and not really knowing they lived in Notting Hill at the time in in the 70s so yeah does that, I guess I'm interested in how things repeat themselves and maybe how we forget that actually we're not we, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, actually. Like, we've been here before quite recently within living memory. Um, so I guess I'm interested in that. And uh, I think something 
and what it, yeah, I mean, what the journey that the stories have to go on under censorship and across time and through form. So what does it mean to reproduce uh, that piece of music which tells that story in a novel or a piece of writing or even reading it out loud to you now in translation, which probably you're not meant to be doing. So, you know, there are all of um, these gaps, like like Bridget mentioned, um, that we're sort of journeying between. Um, and yeah, that episode of Brand Designs is actually real and it's amazing. Um, so I think I've seen that, that one. I'm a bit of a grand designs nerd. It's totally incredible. Um, and that, so I, I just was like, this is this is just amazing. Of course, I have to write about it. Um, we should all be watching it all the time. Like it's so much about like <laughs> love and courage and like respecting nature and the environment and like how terrifying being alive on planet Earth is. Like it's actually, you know. So anyway, so that was, um, but also housing and safety and and all of those things so those are I mean I have a lot of other influences but just for this piece those are the things I was thinking about Rachel how about you yeah I think the the sort of poets who are most um influencing me or inspiring at the moment inspiring me at the moment are May May Bersenbrugger and Will Alexander and the two quite underread North American poets who explore with this incredible like integrity and interrogation the relationship between human beings and non-human beings. And even before I was like going to do this reading, I was just like creeping around my house, noticing all the spiders that I've gotten really used to, like inhabiting the space with me. And I think what's been interesting to me during the virus time is like how people are exploring their confines, people who are not maybe necessarily used to confines. Um, and it made me think of this really interesting art Instagram called the agrophobic traveler where an artist is is taking sort of screenshots on Google Street View um sort of like John Raffman's quite seminal digital artwork Nine Eyes where he took lots of like Google Street View portraits that were quite absurd and surreal and weird but it's from the viewpoint of somebody who can't travel um so it's almost like they're using the a medium that is available to them, which is Google Street View and Instagram, to travel and explore. Um, and recently, uh, an amazing art writer called Emily Labarge wrote this piece where she traversed um, sort of like plague, old plague areas in London, while also talking about the artworks that she came across along the way. Um, and it was sort of a, a a piece, like a hymn to museums, basically, and a, hy a hymn to galleries. And she was talking about how much she missed being in the space of the gallery. But by being only able to walk around London, she noticed so much more than she would have otherwise if she hadn't been forced to have this sort of walking experience. So I think that, confine, that confinement and what we can produce in that confinement is quite interesting. And that relates to poetry because poetry inherently has formal constraints that we have to work within or push against. So it could be an interesting time for art, even though it's a horrific time for everything. Yeah, yeah, I think so. One of the things I've been thinking about looking at the, the pieces that you've all contributed to the issue and thinking about um, what they have in common or the spaces where they overlap is that to me, they all feel like they have kinds of origin stories embedded within them in different ways or a kind of gesturing towards different origin myths. 
Um, and maybe that's that kind of goes back to the fact that they're about journeys anyway. Maybe all journeys are origin myths in one way or another. But I wondered whether that resonated with you guys. And if so, whose whose origin stories they are or, you know, what kind of legacy they're they're coming out of or speaking towards for each of you. OK, um, so I'll just go. Um, but yeah. me. <laughs> Um, there's uh, the post-colonial, not to get too highbrow, but the, the post-colonial theorist um, Gayatri Spivak, Chakraborty Spivak, talks about um, the kind of danger of a, nost- she calls it a nostalgia for lost origins. And this is something mm-hmm. me and Bridget talked about before. Um, but And I've said that in everything I write, there is this nost- obstinate like kind of nostalgia for South London and for the 90s. Um, and I think actually, you know, I had thought about it a lot. It was a year since me and Bridget talked about that. Um, um, I think that's actually a lot to do with growing up under a Labour government when there was a lot of, for me anyway, my experience growing up on a Labour government where you sort of thought like before the crash of 2008, you sort of thought like, yeah, of course the gov- like our schools will keep getting better and more investment. Like, of course, like that's how like this is going to go. Um, of course we're going to keep being, more welcoming to immigrants and migrants, whatever. Like that's the environment that we grew up in, and now that I mean, a that feels kind of like a lie in, in the first place, but also it just doesn't feel like it feels like actually things are disintegrating, becoming more more dangerous, and certainly less stable. So I think that's like part of the kind of lost origins that I identify in my own work. This kind of obsession with teenagehood and um south london in in the 90s early 2000s before pre-crash south london london you know and like we all thought or maybe multi- multiculturalism will just work be forever and whatever and certainly things weren't weren't perfect but i mean the first person i knew who got deported i think i was 18 i mean the hostile environment for example just wasn't didn't exist as a policy then as far as i know in the same way um so anyway and having said that I guess the other like search for lost origins that I am aware of but critical of in my own writing is you know this idea of motherland or Brazil or where I'm really from um and again I think that's part of why having these translations and mistranslations and things that don't quite work or don't quite touch is important because they are lost like you're never going to be able to go back to where you were or the past or be fully wholly Brazilian or whatever it is like it's a myth it's you know partly like a kind of you know you don't want to end up longing for a, a nationality or a nationalism I think or the romance of it so I think long, I'm not sure that's really answering your question but I guess particularly with the various framings like oh there are two girls who are watching tv and we're watching them and here's a photograph like what I was trying to also do is not let you like sit tightly in the moment or the frame um partially for that reason like you can't touch the tv remove you're not in the room with Millie and Katrina watching uh the television um and now what we're looking at planet earth so did all of that happen in a tiny dot how ridiculous Kaitana Veloso looked at the earth and thought it was naked covered in clouds so I guess um there's always a tussle against this sort of longing very appealing lost uh, lost origins and um, and kind of pushing back against that, I guess, for me. I think yeah. that's a really cool 
cool way to think about origin stories, though, to have the like particularities of place or experience that we all began from and to foreground the importance of those states and places, but then to sort of push towards a kind of like universality or something like that's what I sort of felt when listening to uh, your guys' work. And um, I guess for myself, like I think I used to write quite a lot about Cornwall, which is where I'm from, which is just like super countryside and rural. Um, but everybody on my dad's side was was a farmer. And I think there was quite a lot of like there was a there was a heavy emotional and like labored relationship with land and landscape that doesn't really exist anymore, um, at least on the scale that it did when my dad was like a working farming person. Um, and land now gets sold off on still working farms for like travel lodges or chain pubs and I see that happening in the village where I'm from and it does feel like a slow erosion of something but then how much of it is just change rest and I think also when we're consider like when I consider ecological um themes and theories you have to work really hard to not fall into a nostalgic idea of nature because that is is like quite a dangerous thing to be like the natural is good um or like a previous idea of the natural is good um, so I think what it's interesting what you're saying, Yara, like using our origin stories, but also kind of battling them in a way so that we're with challenging ourselves and our writing. Yeah, definitely. So many thoughts. Like Yara said, mentioned before, we like me and I have talked about stuff around this quite a lot. Um, and yeah, um, sorry, I'm just still like working through things. So one thing that I find that I am really wary of doing is, like you both said, uh, leaning into this nostal, this sort of rose-tinted uh, vision of the past. And a lot of it, I agree, definitely does come down to things like the, the place you grew up, the place we grew up in, and also um, the government that we had. It's funny, with the characters, I wanted them to be, they're like 24, 25 years old, I'm a bit older. And I was like, oh, it's fine, I'll just make them born four years after me and then I realized that I couldn't um because it's just a very different because then you know I was the last year when you could get like a 16 plus oyster card well that was whatever it cost um it was the last or second last year of EMA education maintenance allowance and that was 30 quid a week because my parents didn't earn a lot of money um and uh, at the same time I never really particularly felt you know poor or working class either I don't even think I had that language at the time and so a lot of a lot of that sort of nostalgia is for this time that where and also like the youth and whatever all of this stuff um but one thing I've really enjoyed doing mixing pro poetry and prose is having an opportunity to interrogate a lot interrogate that a little bit more um I think with for me anyway I think with poetry you're trying to find a moment right and even if that moment is expansive or you've got a, a series of poems for me each poem is its own moment and I really enjoy that form but what with prose it's, it's it's a moment and then maybe a bit more after or a bit behind and I found myself able to interrogate sort of the lead the main characters the main characters nostalgia you know they they they're sort of one of them in particular she's a young woman and she is starting to do that complaining that so many of us did around clubs in London and the clubs are going and this is where I was built this is where I was made and the young people now don't know what it's like to go to a club that's a club rather than a club night blah 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 and 
I was like, I can imagine like the 19 year olds I work with being like, shut up, like old woman. Um, but in the prose, I could sort of pick that apart. And it was really nice to have the poetry where I can feel really safe and settling into that. This is the origin and this is how much I love it. And this is how we started. And and I think also, again, like that we, that third person plural really helped, has really helped me with that. Just when when you start in a collective, the first question is why are you a collective and where did you come from and I and I really enjoyed being able to do that whereas the prose parts are either first person um or third person and that feels really nice I hope that makes sense I think yeah. I'm really enjoying hearing these kind of these thoughts on nostalgia because I just I've been thinking a lot as well about you know how does what does that mean for us in I guess in, in a new world we're kind of in as well we're kind of grappling with those things but also with like this kind of collective grief it was like you know, we were sliding down this nostalgia already um and I was also mm. I was also thinking Nora, about um what you're saying about the idea of uh or, and as well about all of you the idea of kind of longing for something and the idea of like longing for the land Rachel and there's one word in Portuguese and one word in the only translation I think well there's a word in Welsh but the only translation is in Portuguese and the word is hiraith and it's like a really specific oh. Um, about um, I think the translation in Portuguese, I think the what, the equivalent word is sudad. Um, I don't know. I think I'm pronouncing oh, it wrong. Sudad, yeah, 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 yeah. Like missing, longing, uh, yeah, like here, kind of like a really specific land-tied kind of nostalgia, longing, um, but like very much to do with like the earth and also like homesick for a place you've never been or like a time you've never been. I don't know. It's 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 like it's a well, most people love it <laughs> as a word because it's a great word and it kind of has a lot of held to it <laughs> and it feels like lots of your pieces are engaging with that sense of place very specifically that's not not just about maybe as you say like a place that kind of partly only exists in the imagination or a place that's like temporally specific but is also about the landscape and about um yeah the kind of like specificity of the physical world and and in some cases the natural world as well so one of the other things i wanted to ask you all about which I think I see a lot in in your work both the pieces in the issue but your sort of your work more generally is um, an interest in desire and the relationship between desire and objection um, and this sort of uh, exploration of love and particularly romantic and sexual love as a kind of risk um, and yeah a, a sort of a route to sort of forms of uh, deconstruction of the self or degradation in some ways. Um, Sophie, there's a lot of that in your work in Blue Ticket and, and also in The Water Cure, I think, but actually in, in all of your writing in different ways. I mean, it makes me think a lot about Keisha Desquet and this, the particular the piece <laughs> that is in, um, in Five Dials, which feels like a kind of parable, like a, like a tiny parable about how we, we punish want when we see it in other people. Um, and kind of being like horrified, but also titillated by that, that sort of, um, you know, comeuppance, I guess. Um, and it That's feels so, like a thing yeah. that, that our generation is really, really interested in. Like, it feels to me like a very millennial preoccupation um, in lots of the writers in our generation. So I was kind of interested to hear your thoughts on that relationship between intimacy and abjection and whether it's a, a kind of useful way of thinking and writing about desire. Yeah, there's a, a one of the artists that I worked with, Marie Jacquette. She sort of exemplifies this for me because I've, I've worked with her and her paintings quite a lot, and they seem to 
balance that desire abjection spectrum perfectly because they have this sort of untethered uncontrolled version of female desire which has obviously been treated historically as like quite abject in and of itself but there's a kind of like empowered submissiveness almost to just how given over the women in her paintings are to their desire like they are they're they're really strong and powerful broadly painted and drawn figures but the things that they're saying and the positions that they're holding are like entirely sub submit in submission to their own desire and to the people around them which can be like powerful other figures male figures or female figures and i think it's that sort of relationship between how your desire can sort of suppress you and how we deal with the historical repercussions of our female desire being suppressed and how that manifests now in art and i think with mary's work I just take her example and I think, okay, this is like the most hyper cartoonized version of like a contemporary female desire. Um, and I take a lot from that sort of bombastic example of the representation of female desire. So I urge everybody to go and look at her work. It's amazing. Sounds amazing. I love that idea of like the bombastic, bombasticness. Yeah, I was kind of, I guess like writing Blue Ticket, I kind of quickly, quickly, well, early, early on, I was like, you know, you're writing a book about pregnancy, you, you're kind of writing a book about sex, and it kind of took a while for that to click for me, because and I was like, ridiculous, it takes a while to click for you. <laughs> I kind of, I think I was always skating around it a bit in the water cure. I was like, I don't really want to um, like, go too deep into the kind of the mechanics. And then it was like, well, I mean, literally, she's pregnant. Um, and I think as well, you know, I was thinking a lot about that kind of idea of the maternal, the, the maternal abject, because there's nothing scarier than like a woman with desire, but there's kind of also nothing scarier than like the monstrous mother who's like swelling and she's going to have a baby and it's terrifying and the kind of, you know, the, the violence of birth. And so like when those things collide, I think it's quite powerful. And that was something I, I played with in Blue Ticket as well, but it just, it was just interesting to kind of, think about those ideas and you know the the monstrosity but also the, the the wanting so much of the wanting and the desire yeah desire is an interesting one isn't it um so my my book titanic is all about like the sort of required unrequited back and forth between a couple um and it's using this sort of kind of ridiculous over the top metaphor of like the titanic sinking um and you know uh, the love is over um what i yeah with keisha with keisha the sketch like that that push and pull between relationship between desire being what between having desire and then being projected having desire projected onto you and vice versa was definitely something that was really in my head and actually um i can't remember what you said honey you said something and it sparked something but it's gone um but one of one of the so Keisha the Skirt is like, she comes up, so it's like Keisha the Skirt gets chirps, Keisha the Skirt goes uni, Keisha the Skirt gets married, Keisha the Skirt gets pregnant, there's like a series of them. And, um, but the only thing that I wanted to make sure happened in each of them is that something kind of exploded, or something started to flake off, or stuff like that. I, and I'm not sure why that felt so necessary in relation to the desire, but um in the one where she goes to uni, she's like cooking for men and her boy for boys in her uni bedroom, and they're all made of rice, and bits of them start to flake off. Or like in the 
one where she gets married uh something explodes and she doesn't happen and and it felt you know actual Keisha the scare not that she was an actual person who knows although the these stories were sort of not outed came sort of came out last year which was very strange because I thought it was going to be a myth forever um and uh she I think we that there's desire and there's projecting so much desire onto someone who was like a, I think she was like 14 in these stories we would share and obviously with the hindsight of adulthood you think this is absolutely diabolical and terrible and I, I've really struggled with trying to get the balance right between letting this fictional figure have the desire that she said that she had and projecting this I'm almost 30 and you're 14 and you're sleeping with older men oh no sort of like moral panic and trying not to get rid of her agency but also being hyper aware of the fact that you are just a child and and what 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 is desire in that context like how yeah how does it work all with this character in this in this in these collections of poems am I more comfortable with her sleeping with boys her own age which also feels wrong or with slightly older men or really old men or maybe none of the above or all of the above or women or young yeah and I I haven't really got an answer if I'm honest (laughs) so I've just been writing stuff and trying to work out what will stick but it's yeah so much of desire is what is is what the world projects onto you right and um going back to Gene Tuma I think he he writes about women's desire in a way that no other male writer, I think, does, if I'm honest, which is why I love his work so much. He writes women so well and um, manages in so in he's got in the first part of Kane. Um, there's a bunch of sort of short story or prose poems, I guess, that are just women's names. So it's like Becky, Corintha um, and, and and, you know, some of them it's like yeah just the way he describes their desire and some of it really you know one of it she's sleeping with a man who's about to get lynched another one she's a woman she's a white woman who's had these two mixed race sons and I think he does it so well and I still I'm not sure exactly how but I do I do love it I think that idea of things sort of disintegrating and or exploding through desire is interesting right because it's like at once it's sort of gesturing to what a um what a powerful impulse it is that it can it can be like volatile in that way but also there is a sense that people sort of pull themselves apart and reconstruct their identities through passing through the kind of crucible of that experience. Yeah, I remember I remember being like 14 and reading Keisha the Skit on um, my friend's phones, whatever phones we had then. Like I feel like proper those ones where you were like counting all of the characters to send your text on. Um, and... Uh, yeah, didn't know if she was real or, you know, who had added what or, um, but also, yeah, not being able to see her vulnerability, obviously, even as a fictional character. Um, and like, is she a fantasy? And if so, is it okay for anything to happen to her because it's a safe fantasy space? Or actually, is it not at all the case? Um, so yeah, can't wait to read that, Bridget. Um, uh, and yeah, I think in, um, but in Stubborn Archivist, there's a lot of kind of a sort of, I guess, because we grew up like in similar times, similar place. But like um, this question of teenage girls and suddenly being sexualized by the world and uh, that feeling powerful 
and exciting and um kind of figuring but then actually not having a sexuality on your own terms really if that makes sense so kind of expect in in Southern Archivist the main cat and that also being about class and race and whatever all of these other things sexuality blah 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 so like uh the main character in Southern Archivist is kind of expected to be heterosexual she's hypersexualized and um there's a bit at the start where it talks about her boyfriend um well, actually, she's she's in bed with her boyfriend. And she says, should I speak in bed in Portuguese? And what's interesting to me is that reviewers a couple of times have said, oh, a horrible boyfriend asks her to speak in Portuguese in bed. Um, but she suggests it, right? And it's actually, so it's a bit more complicated than that. So anyway, um, yeah, a lot of of, of my work, um, Southern Archivist, was about uh, working out a way to have feel desire on your own terms or not feel desire. Um, and that did lead to a much more fragmented text um, because I think part of that, in order for me to let that character do that on her own terms, she had to be withholding some things, if that makes that makes sense. Um, so that's in the same way that like the Portuguese in the text isn't translated um, because I want to deliberately exclude some readers and that's a withholding as well. But um, now what I'm writing is very saucy. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that I was thinking about, I don't know whether this is related or a different thing, is about the kind of relationship to the domestic in a lot of your writing and how that can also feel like quite a contested space or in some cases quite an unsafe space. Um, and whether that, you know, that has sort of overlaps, I guess, with one's relationship to intimacy in in writing and in narrative um but like the space of the home I mean of course in your piece Yara it has this sort of beautiful tender redemptive quality but there is also the sense of the threat from the woodland certainly in the in the sort of first half of the piece we have this sense of kind of anxiety about what's going to happen in that space um and in different ways I think you're all sort of writing about that contested base of the home whether the threat kind of comes from within or comes from without um I don't know if you want to if anyone wants to say anything about that um well just to emphasize that Kevin okay, presenter was very oh go on yeah no 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 go 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 just that Kevin the grand designs presenter was really worried about the house in the episode because it only had one window so <laughs> yeah <laughs> I just think that's quite important you can really build a house wrong if it has no windows <laughs> Um, I like that. Grand Designs. I used to watch it so obsessively for a while. Um, yeah, it's funny. I've been thinking a lot about the domestic and um, only in the last like few weeks, obviously, by virtue of spending so much time, more time at home and in a home that I really like with people that I'm, which is not always as a renter in London, has not always been the case. Um, and I've been trying to work out if house parties count as the domestic. Um, mm. And what? Yeah, so I don't know if this is necessarily a spoiler, but the two the two main characters in in the thing that I'm writing sort of end up at this house party together, and um, I haven't quite got to that bit yet. But I've been trying to work out what what that means because all the other representations of 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 the home are quite like homely, like it's people cooking or eating or making. 
and and I and I and I really more than wanting to go to like a rave or whatever I really would love a house party in these covid times um just like a like not 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 nothing mad you know my friends are all like 30 uh but you know I don't want vomit on the floors but I would just want like a bit too much wine maybe a cocktail in someone's house and the house is clean afterwards um and I've been trying to work out does this count as a domestic setting or not it's the house it's the home it's my home it's very homely but it's also this like idea of debauchery and and yeah and haven't really got an answer but I do I do think it's interesting that my gut says no and I'm like well why not why is why is this not why is this not part of a domestic setting if people are getting drunk and being silly? Um, and uh, sorry, uh, quite a lot of this is probably influence. I've been reading um, Danez Smith's collection, Home, uh, Homey, um, and I wrote a thing, wrote, wrote, wrote a review slash maybe essay about it for uh, Poetry London. And really, really, I think it's a fantastic collection. Like, it's just great. Danez Smith is a great, great, great writer. Um, and it, but I started writing the review before lockdown and then changed it lots basically afterwards or not afterwards sort of in the last last week last couple of weeks I just completely reworked it because it uh, you know at first I was sort of reading it as this kind of polemic on like and, and it is in lots of ways about race and queerness and all of this stuff but actually I feel like it's so fundamentally about friendship and about finding that domestic sort of squeezing the spaces between sort of heavenly stuff and down on earth stuff and and squeezing that together and finding like god and finding like god in nature and nature in god does that make sense um and there's there's like references to like drinking with your friends or sitting with your friends at dinner and i just i just found it so like wholesome and so so warming and i was like would i have read it as a wholesome warming thing before lockdown um probably not but i feel like i'm i'm, I'm seeing the I'm seeing the the wholesomeness and the domesticness and the and the joy the sim- the simple joy of maybe something that isn't nece- that wouldn't necessarily be seen as joyous by even me six months ago. Um, yeah, that's a really convoluted way to say I want a house party and won't get one <laughs> probably till next year. Um, and probably I'm just going to be writing about parties forever now. Um, yeah. I like this kind of idea of like domesticity in dystopia, which is just like so much of what I love mm. and take novels, Sophie. Like when I think about how things are placed within a sort of like dystopian setting, like lovely food described in this like incredibly imagistic, almost pearly sort of evanescent lens. But what's surrounding it is this entirely unimaginable um, dystopian space that obviously it feels like we're all living in. So it's really interesting, Bridget, that you would talk about this like domesticity in dystopia. Like, how do we conceive of the things that we previously found comfort in that were domestic, and how do we imagine mm-hmm. them now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Having read *Dystopia*, I'll just say that I think it really does that really well, Sophie. Like, just <laughs> that, that like ten- that like line between we're literally in a house someone's literally doing something yeah I just think that does it it does it really really well and it's probably why it's maybe so unsettling at points because we want to trick ourselves into knowing where we are and what's going on but we don't and 
yeah, it's because it's great. Thank you. I think one of my favorite bits in Bootsy was like, there's a bit, um, there's a bit where they're all in a cabin and obviously like no spoilers, <laughs> but there's just that, that, that idea. It's, it's kind of like the most domestic bit of the book, and but they're in literally like a cabin in the woods, a spooky cabin in the woods. Um, but they're all pregnant and kind of making a home together in their own way. And it's like, it's just, yeah, a group of pregnant women in the woods, some of who hate each other and some of who love each other and are all kind of a threat to each other, but also each other's comfort and each other's kind of family. And I just like kind of, you know, trying to do home stuff with like bulls they find and like dandelions and stuff. And but still building something quite like beautiful and special together. And that was probably... Yeah, it's like a really quiet part of the book, but I think it was my favourite. And I have been, yeah, I, I love that idea, Bridget, of like, house party is the necessity because I was trying to think when you're speaking, like, what is that? What is that element that makes it domestic? And is it the wholesomeness? Because even like if I'm with my friends or in the, in the olden days, you know, things could get really rowdy, but there was still that kind of sense of like, I guess, unconditional mm. love, joy and wholesomeness that even if things got really like super rowdy, it was still kind of, feel like your puppies playing together and just like with with the family I don't know yeah I maybe I just want to really go to a house party as well <laughs> I think there is um there's a kind of opposition between respectability versus safety right like the kinds of the domestic that feel um appropriate or familiar in the sense that they're kind of you know sanctioned as appropriate for family spaces versus a domestic that as you say can be can feel more kind of chaotic or, um, you know, like NSFW, but where everybody still feels very safe. Um, and yeah, I mean, I suppose the, the kind of flip side of that is this sort of like nightmarish domestic, which, um, yeah, which, which has that sort of like quality of things that are supposed to be comforting and familiar, but surrounded by a sort of terrifying landscape or an uncanny landscape. Um, I got a lot of that from your from your sequence in the issue, Rachel. This real sense of the kind of like nightmarishness that's mm. just like infusing things that should be familiar and and kind of safe. Um, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wanted to talk a bit about form, if everybody's up for that, which we've touched on a bit already. But you all kind of use it in very distinctive ways, I think, and you're all you are all playing with different kinds of fragmentation I think and sort of piecing things together so I was I was kind of interested to hear yeah hear any of you who would like to kind of speak a bit more to how you found the form of your your pieces and like what that kind of shape um does for you I guess I'm trying to write a book length poem which is pretty hard and that's probably all about all I can say on it to be honest <laughs> um and part of it um, but it feels like it's a lot of stamina. I have like so much respect for novelists because I just think they have a patience and a stamina that I certainly don't have as a poet. I don't know if other poets have this, but writing a book length poem feels like quite a job. So writing a book length novel must be hell. <laughs> book length in terms of pages or words? I guess both with the poem. I just want it to be like one long poem. Mm. Wow. I'm excited. To see it. Yeah. Oh, I to see it as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think I just like really love the yeah. of a fragment. I just love the kind of, especially with Blue Ticket, just I guess an extent in the Water Curious album, just kind of really made sense to me in the sense that the protagonist is going through something like so intense and it's almost like 
brain in survival mode, I guess, going from like one thing to the next and kind of cutting out all the superfluous stuff in between. And then sometimes I'm like, maybe I'm just intellectualizing it and I'm literally just, I get quite bored <laughs> and I want to just like write the bits that are like very interesting to me. But I do think that that sense of clarity and kind of almost skipping in time and just hyper focus, I really, um, yeah, I really try for that. That feels like something that's taken from poetry, right? Which is where you started originally writing, Sophie. That idea of like the kind of intense images flashing without any of the boring, uh, like yeah. connecting yeah. scenes. <laughs> when I started writing fiction, I mean, like it seemed absolutely, if I could like go back 10 years in time, like I could not write anything past a thousand words. It seemed like literally impossible. So maybe I've just like slowly <laughs> expanded my remit. <laughs> yeah. I love, I mean, I just love fragmented forms, um, which is probably why I love all of your work so much. Um, but also when I, so I guess with what I'm writing, there's two things, right? There's the form and then there's the tense. And I think tense is just such a, like, I think the reason why I fell in love with poetry so much at the beginning of my sort of writing career was because tense could be anything and it couldn't, and it could not make sense. And I found that really exciting. Um, and it's like okay we're, we're just speaking in the present and like my mum's uh native language tree from ghana is very much a present focused language and loads of like um even like uh jamaican patois and like creole i think as far as i can tell haitian creole they're all present languages and i find that i, I think it really leaks into the my parents and my aunties and all of that people who speak those languages i think they exist in a different fear like um I remember watching this is a big leap but uh this film called Arrival it's got Amy Adams in it it's about aliens who teach you how to speak a language um but the idea is that you learn I watched it on a plane and I always get right on a plane so I like, started to cry at the end but the idea was that maybe I shouldn't spoil it I don't know it's like four years old um the idea is that the aliens teach her this language um and the language exists in all tenses at once and so she can suddenly exist in all tenses at once she can exist in the past and the present and the future and she can influence herself across those times and I watched it and I was just like how this this makes perfect sense it's probably the only film on my like writing mood board and I, I, I just try and always remember that that language completely influences space and time um, and also but also I guess a really basic influence that I just love is this book called um then we came to the end by an American writer called Je Joshua Ferris. He does like uh, sort of comedic um, novels. Um, and I read it oh, years ago when it first came out. I must have been a teenager. And so it didn't get loads of the references to it. It's set in the American office in like, an, in like a, a classic Midwestern office. Everyone hates each other. Everyone loves each other. People are sleeping with each other. People are undercutting each other. But he writes the entire novel. It's like 500 pages, I think. Uh, in a third person plural is a we and it starts it starts off like we were we were fractious and overpaid like our time was without promise or something like that and I just was like this is incredible this I I get it I understand um exactly what you are telling me in this first sentence and I think that's as much that's as much form as as literally the fragmented style and and what, what I what I hope I can try and do, although it's not proving as easy as I hoped it would be, is each one influence the other. Um, but we shall see if that works because it's not working at the moment. Um, 
yeah about form I think um Bridget uh in the same way that like um you you would like being familiar with Twee would make you be like guys who's speaking only English you need to know about this like other way of thinking about stuff hello um mm. I think for me uh like growing up reading British novels and studying them at school but then also being aware that like um I don't know like the way I was brought up anyway particularly because I guess my relationship I can read and write Portuguese but my relationship with it is more oral um the primacy of the written word and of the novel form is like very British um in my mind at least um and particularly when you mm. think about who gets censored who's allowed to say what etc um obviously like who gets to be literate who gets to be published blah 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 but how do you how does a nation tell its stories how does a cultural language or a culture bound by language tell its stories um the primacy of the novel form or as the main form for telling big narrative is like not universal and even if it were universal it doesn't mean we all have to go along with it um and particularly for me thinking about the novel is like very powerful for um British imperialism the novel says like this is what happened it began here it ended here traditionally this is what the re realist British novel does um this is what things are like in that place let me take you there um it's so authoritative it's a lot about domination thinking about like Pamela by Samuel Richardson it's like a you know a sort of sexual assault saga um so I am always very keen to disrupt and interrupt it in my writing and what's obviously been around for a while is the kind of unreliable narrator who goes like oh but I might be a baddie I might be lying to you um and I think like that's fine and that does that does does that but what's um I'm more interested in is not just saying you know is the narration reliable but is the textuality reliable which is slightly different it's not saying like uh you know is Jane Eyre telling us the truth about what happened to Mr Rochester or uh, Bertha it's about saying like uh who made this book who printed this book um how is it written why like I mean and acknowledging the materiality of the text as well so like Jane Eyre I don't know why I use that example but it's actually quite illustrative of a lot of things I was saying like the, the text that was originally printed is entirely different to what you can get in the LRB bookshop now and that really matters it's an entirely different text it exists in a really different world it's doing completely different work um so I'm for me that's really important with form to always go back to the fact that um you know you're not actually just writing a word document or you begin writing a word document but when the materiality of your text changes um it's a completely different object in the world and it's really important to remember that your text is an object in the world it has a relationship to um all kinds of things like but ultimately the things that i guess i'm interested in particularly are like nation and the story that we tell ourselves or how we understand ourselves um how did we get to here but also where do we go next um so Southern Archivist for me was very much a how did we get here book um how did it come to be that she is sexualized in this way etc etc and the story is very much about like underneath it all like dictatorship colonialism etc 
And but I think with my work now, I'm trying to do much more. Okay, well, where do we go next? Like, if we can't imagine it, then that's quite bad. Can I add something quickly? Sorry. Um, just yeah. that's so interesting, Yara. Um, just one thing that I think is one thing not to like generalize all writing or fiction or art from not the West as other, but one thing that I think one thing I think is really interesting is that you reference music so often and when I've asked you for like Brazilian poetry for example you've sent me like lyrics mm. which I find really interesting um mm. and I think that oral nature of so many other cultures that aren't like the British novel that begins here and ends here it does sort of two, two things it exists on one level where it's saying by virtue of things being spoken there's a there's a there's a there's a part that everyone has to agree that this is not absolute fact because someone is speaking but also and that's why you get things like I'm just thinking of like Ghanaian stories for example like there's an accepted norm of exaggeration there's an accepted norm of hyperbole there's an accepted norm of um unreliability but because of all of those things, there's also this sort of weird truth in it, if that makes sense. And I think, yeah, with, yeah, just thinking about truth and how truth is this objective, subjective thing, I think the British novel can sometimes position itself as this arbiter of truth, even when it's, even when talking about unreliable narrators, it's like, this is truthful. This is a truthful account of how this narrator is unreliable. Whereas I, what I, what I think we're both maybe trying to do is to push against that in lots of ways. Mm. Okay, a quick audience question um, from Sarah Jane Robert. Everyone, which book in your spirits during the pandemic, which is actually a really nice positive note to end on. <laughs> mm. uh, I've been reading, I've been trying to read stuff that is fundamentally not that important. And also, yeah, so I've been reading loads of books about tarot and uh, a book by Chani Nicholas about the planets and how they affect your horoscope. Deeply heartwarming, wonderful, like give me explanations for everything that's going on. Um, and I've been reading lots of magazines. Like I ha I've been buying magazines. So I've been buying like Opera's Bazaar and stuff. Just so yeah, not books actually, but um, I don't know, for some reason in lockdown, I got really into magazines and I haven't really read magazines for about 15 years, but I recommend it. It's, there's something really nice of looking at fashion when, because all the magazines are, are late. So they're like a month or two old. And so they're not talking about the world falling apart. Escapism, a good one. Mm. <laughs> Mine's been slightly escapist reading. I've been reading a lot of Garth Greenwell. Um, who writes about sort of like just being out in the world and being gay and sexual and traveling. And I think that it's, I've, I've loved it so much in this time anyway, because he's like an exceptional writer. He's also a poet, um, but it's slightly transported me out of my flat when I've been too much in my flat. So I think I've been reading stuff that has been transporting me, big novels. I've been like really drawn to things that kind of you could describe as like romps like just good fun but also I, I read um the heavens by sandra Hume newman which is really amazing mm. um it's just 
it's so interesting and it's like so well done but it's also just like very enjoyable and I just kind of sat down and was like oh this is just so good to be but also it's kind of it's an interesting one to read now because it's about someone kind of someone time traveling between the Elizabethan era and the present day but are they really time traveling or are they um not well it's kind of it's never really explained but it's there's a lot of grief for like a world that used to be or a world that like you're missing and the kind of the narrator is you know every time she comes back into the present the world is just a bit changed and she's so she's feeling a lot of grief because she's never in the right world she's always between like three visions and it's really good and just like incredibly good fun as well um i read uh, a book recently called Amora um by uh Natalia um, Borges Palazzo it she's brazilian but it's been translated into english and it's just loads of lesbian short stories and they're really fun and um they're all really short as well so that one's good um and also I was trying to find the link now but i don't know it's basically just like loads of plant instagrams um <laughs> and <laughs> i know that's not a book or an album but um just, just like because sometimes i'm like why won't my plants grow i just want them to grow faster like i want to turbocharge them but actually that's i need to just like accept my plants for what they are really and just appreciate the joy of each new leaf when and if it decides to bless us so yeah that's the great thing about plants they uh they encourage a sort of zen practice of acceptance because mm. <laughs> they're so on maybe just mine are <laughs> yeah okay well i feel like we could carry on talking all evening and i would really love to but um people might want to go and have their tea if they've not had it yet um so that's probably all we've got time for um and all that remains is to is to press the button and send the issue out which is happening somewhere across the city. My lovely assistant Zainab is doing that now. So thank you, Zainab. Um, and thanks, Sophie, Yara, Bridget, Rachel, for a fantastic uh, conversation and for your wonderful pieces in the issue. Um, and yeah, I hope to see everyone again soon, maybe even in person next time. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.